0: All right, well that scripture reading you just heard from Acts chapter 16 recounts the story of when the apostle Paul and his apprentice Silas took the gospel and that message of Jesus to Philippi in ancient Macedonia. And also with Paul and Silas was Paul's other new apprentice, uh, this very young guy named Timothy, and then Luke, the, the man who most likely wrote the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke, was apparently also with them. And when Paul and his co-laborers in the gospel first brought that message of Jesus to Philippi, some of the people resisted the message and others became followers of Jesus. Still others saw Jesus as a threat to their economy that was based on pagan idolatry and slavery and exploitation. But regardless of the various responses to Paul and the gospel, it affected everyone's life in Philippi because of its transformative power. It just kind of shook the place up. And I wanted to open with that passage that Corey read to help remind us that this letter we've been walking through in the New Testament, which seems so old and archaic, is actually a a letter to a real group of people called the Philippians. Um, It's historically grounded in this, this thing that happened, and It's written to a group of people who became followers of Jesus there in the first century. This small group of Jesus' people, the church in Philippi, had experienced great joy and deliverance from oppression and shame and guilt and despair. And yet, at the time that Paul is writing this letter, which is sometime after he first brought the gospel there and planted that church, sometime after that, they were experiencing reason for anxiety. Paul had been arrested at this time, and in fact, he's writing this letter from a prison somewhere, probably in Rome. The government for the church in Philippi was not easy to work with. The surrounding culture uh, didn't necessarily encourage them in the way of Jesus, and to add you know, insult to injury, some of their uh, Jewish brothers and sisters from whom they came up with and were still sometimes family members with, um, some of them were, were questioning and causing them to, to reconsider Jesus and maybe to go back to some of their, um, their different ways of life that was causing them stress and anxiety. And it's in that context Where this fledgling church is feeling pressured and even persecuted from multiple angles, that Paul writes his letter to the Philippians. And in this letter, we see that his main motive is to encourage this little church and to remind them of who Jesus is and who they are because of who Jesus is, which is, you are loved, you are partakers of the grace of Jesus, and you're partners in the gospel with Paul. That's pretty big stuff, and I would say that that also describes every church, including ours. And Paul encourages this group of people, in light of their new identity in Jesus, to actually live like Jesus, to to serve like Jesus, to consider uh, how Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself and walked among people in a way that loved others. And it's with that introduction that I want us to hear the part of the letter that we're going to be studying tonight. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord. Again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. So be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Lord, thank you once again for your Apostle Paul, for Luke, uh, for those who not only said and lived these things, but recorded them, that we might be encouraged, that we might hear you through them. And I pray that that is what would happen. By the power of your Spirit, open this word to us to not only understand what it meant, but what it means for us. Amen. Amen. So, once again, we encounter some of Paul's run, long, long run-on sentences. Like, it's, it's really sometimes hard to follow Paul. So we're going to do our best today to get at what he's saying. And it just so happens that this passage breaks nicely into two sections, and then the final verse ties it all together. So what we're going to do is look at that first section, and it begins with Paul's double command to the whole community— to rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in Jesus, in who he is, and in what he's done, and in what he promises to do. Rejoice. In the face of hardships that the Philippians are enduring, and even writing from imprisonment himself, Paul emphasizes the importance of rejoicing in Jesus. Now, just consider that a minute. He's writing to a church because they're going through hard times, he himself is in prison and he's saying to rejoice. I I know some people, you probably do too, that I would say don't always live in reality and they're just happy all the time, even when it's like, dude, you're going through a really hard time, like are you just avoiding the fact that life's really hard right now? Like, So is this Paul just being like, hey, pretend like it's all okay? I don't think so. I don't think that Paul is, is saying something morbid here like rejoice that things are going badly or uh, people are suffering, yes, rejoice in the Lord. I don't think that you can read all of Paul and get that out of this sentence. In fact, throughout the whole letter, Paul has been reminding the Philippians and us that the God of the universe, Jesus the Christ, does things differently from the other gods of the pagan world who tend to seek power. And he does things differently because, last I checked, most of us aren't struggling with idolatry to Zeus or to Artemis or anything, right? That's, maybe if you are, let's talk. I mean, I the Bible talks a lot about that, but our gods in our secular age are you know, independence and self-sufficiency and you, you name it, what all the lures and the traps are, that's what we're struggling with. And he reminds us to rejoice that God is faithful, that God is humble, that God is self-sacrificing because of his love for us, and that God is going to put all things right at the end of the age. And closely related to our reasons for rejoicing, and still part of his opening thought, is the call to be gentle. To be free of anxiety, to be prayerful, and at peace. And here's how the sentence structure works. Sophia's going to put a slide up. It's the first one. I don't know why we still call it slides. I I don't think I've ever used slides in 22 years of ministry, but we'll call it a slide. Um, And this is this is the passage. Let's read it together just to kind of we're going to be working on this for a little bit So let your gentle spirit be known to all people The lord is near be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving Let your requests be made known to god and the peace of god which surpasses all comprehension Will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus so that's That's what we're dealing with. Now, Sophia, go to slide two, just to show us. So what I've done here is, there are four parts to this piece, and I've color-coded them so that you can help see along. So the first piece is, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. And then, the Lord is near, so be anxious for nothing. That's the second piece. The third piece is, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then finally, uh, the result of that is that the peace of God which surpasses comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay. Got that? Sophia, let's go to the third one. And She's going to leave this up here for uh, just a little while, actually. And I want you to see how this breaks down. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. And then if you see that third line, let your requests be made known to God. That's the emphasis of this passage. And here's, it, let me just break it down for us a little bit more. From the very beginning, one of the core traits of people who follow Jesus well is gentleness. It's gentleness. It is the fruit that is born of a person who's living in concert with the Spirit. And a lot of you know the fruit of the Spirit passage from the book of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And someday I'll preach through Galatians and I will teach you that it is not fruits of the Spirit, it is fruit of the Spirit. And all of those things are kind of one thing. So basically, let's not get on a rabbit trail here, but you don't have the fruit of the Spirit if you just do like three of those things but don't do the other things, right? You, you can't say you've got love if you're not gentle. Anyway, so, so gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's part of that fruit and it is one of the core things that identifies a person who follows Jesus well. Gentleness is one of those traits that is easy to practice when nothing bad is happening in your life. When your kids are asleep, and maybe even when you're all alone, it's pretty easy to be gentle. Um, But man, it is, it takes an act of God when you're under stress to be gentle. Well, maybe not you. It takes an act of God for me to be gentle when I'm bugged and under stress. And I want us to remember that Paul is writing specifically to a church that is under stress from authorities, and powers that are making their lives difficult. And the natural thing to do when we feel anxious or threatened is to be defensive, it's to, to, to wear anxiety. It, we either, typically, and this is oversimplification, but we either typically retreat or we engage. We fight or flight, right? This is basic biopsychology. Uh, fight or flight is is something that animals do. It's something that we do. It's just kind of how our natural makeup is. So when Paul calls us, what he's calling us to is something that has to be spirit empowered. It is to be known as gentle to all people. Jesus is gentle. In Matthew 11, he calls us to come to him and he tells us that he is gentle and humble in heart. The prophets describe Jesus, the Messiah, as one who will not break off a bruised reed or to snuff out a smoldering wick. It is beautiful imagery for someone who, uh, Jesus encounters a person who is so far gone that maybe the practical thing would do is to throw them to the wayside and Jesus says, no, I will work with you. I am gentle, I am humble. I always have another ounce of grace. I always have more Um, more leash for you. Okay, so Jesus is gentle. Some of the most uh, uh, memorable followers of Jesus throughout history, such as Mother Teresa or Henry Nouwen or Saint Francis of Assisi, they're not only known as effective, but they're known as gentle. Gentleness is not, was not a popular trait in the Roman world that emphasized dominance and strength and authoritarian rule, and it is not a popular trait in our culture that emphasizes boldness and self-assertion and winning arguments. We're really into arguing and winning arguments like uh, online and all, the, uh, yeah, all that stuff, right? But the church, which ought to be a training ground for gentleness, has also succumbed in many ways to our results-oriented culture, where leadership boards endorse certain leaders in churches who may gather lots of people, but inwardly, man, they're dealing in back power, uh, in power politics and intimidation and authoritarian models of leadership. And so Paul calls the church to be known as gentle people. And then he says, be anxious for nothing. Can I just, can I just, pause on that phrase right now, Um, be anxious for nothing, and can can we talk first about what I think Paul is not saying, because that is a trigger for a lot of us, like, what do you mean tell me not to be anxious, right? I, I think that what Paul cannot mean is that we are never to experience anxiety, or that we're never to experience fear, or we're never to experience, uh, discomfort. This cannot mean that we're bad Christians if we experience suffering and that we're not always happy clappy. So those of you who get the blues or get down or you're down right now, it's okay. Paul is not condemning you. And he's not talking to people with anxiety disorders and callously saying, hey, just stop being anxious. And he's not talking about sadness or grief or the normal stresses of life. Paul himself, in the Bible, expressed fears, and internal conflicts, and pain, and sadness, and frustrations. But, can I be, well, of course I can be honest in preaching. Um, Even more importantly, I think, than what Paul tells us about himself in the Bible, is what we know about Jesus in the Bible, And Jesus himself models times when he grieved the loss of a loved one to the point of weeping. Um, Stress, he experienced stress to the point of sweating blood because he was so intensely bothered that the capillaries close to his face burst and blood came out of his pores. In the immediate context, Paul knows that being gentle in the face of aggressive people or people who cause you stress can make you feel vulnerable. Just imagine a stressful situation caused by a person or a group of people in your life that's, that's real. You can avoid them. That sometimes you know, shields you from it. You can be equally aggressive. You can meet their, their, their aggression. And that makes you feel maybe strong or good about yourself. But when we make ourselves gentle in the face of an aggression, you can't help but feel vulnerable. And I think that's that's what Paul is getting at here. Being gentle makes us feel vulnerable, even anxious, especially when we first start out on that road of trying to be like Christ. And that's why Paul adds two details. First, he doesn't just say, hey, don't be anxious. He says, the Lord is near. And in the Greek, the sentence says, ha kurios engus, which means nothing probably to you, but engus, it means the Lord is your hand. He's at hand, which means like, that's, I don't have very long arms, but even for Ryan, that's not very far away. Um, The Lord is that close. He is with you. That's what Paul says before he says, don't be anxious, Jesus is close by, he's aware, he's with you, he's for you, he's in you through the Holy Spirit. He is near, so don't be anxious, be gentle. The second thing is that Paul isn't simply saying don't be anxious or don't worry as if you could help it, right? Anyone out there been anxious or worried in your life? Why? I don't know why everyone's not raising their hand, maybe you're just special ice-cold veins, if you ever felt overwhelmed, anxious, uptight, stressed out, does it usually work for you when someone says, don't be anxious? (laughs) You probably wanna punch them in the nose. Uh, The worst, though, is when some uh, well-meaning Christian throws a Bible verse in your face like, hey, the Bible says don't be anxious, so stop it, Casey. Stop it, Chuck. right? Can we all be clear that that doesn't work? I mean, uh, Shannon, you're a counselor. Does that work? No, it doesn't work. Yeah, okay. So there are techniques we can learn to calm down. I suggest that we all try that. Meditation, prayer, all of that. But Paul gives us more than that in this passage. He says, let your gentleness be known to all people, which may cause anxiety, because being vulnerable does that. But the Lord is near. Don't be anxious. Now look at the passage up there, but with prayer and petition, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul recognizes that we are going to have stress, that we are going to have anxiety, and so he gives us a place to put it. We give it to God. We pray. We petition, which is a prayer of, of crying out, of asking for stuff, for what we, what we want, for what we feel we need in that situation, for help with our feelings, with deliverance from enemies, either real or perceived, with requests for help to be more gentle. We let our requests be made known to God. That's the ticket. So if we follow this logic again, when we let our gentleness be made known to all, it can result in anxiety. When we take that anxiety and make our requests known to God, the result is peace that transcends what makes sense. That's what that means, transcends understanding. It transcends what makes sense. Thanks, Sophia. Now how are we to grow in gentleness, especially toward those who we feel are making our lives difficult? Well, Paul says that rather rather than focusing on what is offensive, let me just make a side note of of contextual clarification, it seems to be that the biggest point of stress and anxiety on the Philippians was their cultural surroundings, deeply pagan culture, Uh, every pagan city had, um, you know, their primary gods and goddesses that they worshipped, and then all these subsidiary ones, everyone's worried about how do I atone for my sin, how do I make sure my crops are good, how do I make sure my family's fertile, how do I make sure I'm protected from enemies, and so I'm sacrificing to this god, I'm sacrificing to that goddess, I'm hoping that they'll listen to me. Now what happens when we're a whole community that does that, and about 10 of us out of this big group decides we follow this other God? And a famine comes, or raiders come. You guys start to say, hey Christians, you're not pulling your weight. We need you to come to these pagan festivals. We need your sacrifices to Zeus. Okay? And we're like, well, we're not supposed to do that. And so, you know, so we... That's where this anxiety is coming from. It's the culture, it's the culture. Um, And what Paul is saying in this passage is rather than focusing on what the culture is doing to you or the bad parts of the culture around you or the ugly parts or the parts that are contrary to Christ, rather than focusing there, because that's easy, that's low-hanging fruit, um, we all see what the problem is. But rather than focusing on that, look for whatever is true. Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. So culture, newsflash, isn't perfect in any context, in any time period in human history. Like we've never, well, I don't know how you would know if it was perfect, but People kill people in every culture. <laughs> There's swindling in every culture. Like, no culture has figured it out. It's all imperfect, but every human culture is made by humans, which means that it's created by image bearers of the living God. That's what human beings are. We're walking image bearers of God. And that means that it should not surprise us if in every culture that we encounter, we see some aspect of truth and beauty and virtue present in that culture, okay? See, it's tempting when we're under pressure to either withdraw all the way, uh, become our own little Christian bubble, and not engage with culture. That's one response. Um, It's tempting when under pressure to withdraw from culture or to go to war with culture. It's kind of these two extremes, but Paul uses the language of gentleness and prayer to God rather than becoming a culture warrior, and he encourages followers of Jesus to appreciate everything that can be appreciated. So that's the one hand of the, if we had a scale of balances, that's, that's, that's one hand. That's what Paul is saying to this group of folks. Now, on the other hand, every culture has its downside because people who create culture might be made in God's image, but every single one of us has a cracked image of God because of, of sin. We may get a lot right, but we also get a lot wrong. So what's to be done What is to be done? Well, listen, if all culture, and if you're wondering, like, what is culture? It's art, music, film, religion, politics, economics, education, fashion, food, ethics, morals, religious expression, philosophies. If all culture is both created by God's image bearers And if all of those image bearers are cracked by sin, then we should be able to find truth, honor, righteousness, purity, beauty, excellence, and things worthy of praise. But we should also be aware that nothing we find in culture will be 100% right or worthy of giving our whole hearts to. Does that make sense? We should be able, it should not surprise us, um, would our neighbors who may want nothing to do with Jesus do some really creative, beautiful, awesome, good, true things? And at the same time, it should not surprise us that maybe we shouldn't worship them. Okay, that's, that's the two, the stream. We need to be discerning but open to the fact that there's beauty and goodness defined in everyone and in every place we're willing to look. One of my favorite quotes by the, uh, by the late Frederick Buechner speaks to this glorious Uh, this gracious stance toward the goodness of simple things in life, things that some religious circles might label as secular or mundane or too earthy. And I would say they're gifts from God. And here's how the quote goes. Who knows how the awareness of God's love first hits people? Every person has their own tale to tell including the person who would not believe in God if you paid them to believe in God. Some moment happens in your life that makes you say, yes, right up to the roots of your hair, that makes it worth having been born just to have experienced. Laughing with someone until the tears run down your cheeks. Waking up to the first snow being in bed with someone you love. Whether you thank God for such a moment or thank your lucky stars, it is a moment that is trying to open up your whole life. If you turn back on such a moment and try and get back to business as usual, you might lose the whole ball game. But if you throw your arms around such a moment and hug it like crazy, you might just save your soul why does all of this matter because being gentle casting our anxiety on God rather than seeking culture wars and rather than seeking unnecessary confrontation that is a stance that allows the grace of God to work in and through culture in and through the church in and through you and me and in and through whatever means he chooses, because God is powerful enough and weird enough and mysterious enough to work through ways that we might not expect. Being gentle is two-pronged good news. It is good news, That we are not called to fight and we're not called to retreat. We're called to be. That is good news. And it is good news that God cares about every person you're going to meet. That the kingdom of God is at hand and is breaking in all around us. Now how do we learn to live this way? Where is the gospel calling us to live in a way of gentleness that is, oh, so difficult in our nature. Two realities in play. The first one, from the first chapter of Philippians, is Paul's deep conviction that the one who began the good work in you will perfect it until the last day. That Jesus has begun a good work in you, and he's ever at work in you, and that is, you can resist it, you can think you're resisting it, but it is something that Paul thinks is inevitable, that it is happening, that he he will continue this good work in you. So that is just pure gospel. I think that's where we hang our hat in all of this. The second thing is that that verse nine really ties all this together, Uh, more than the dude's rug ties the room together. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Paul encourages us to practice or to put into practice what we've learned, what we've received, Uh, And what we've heard and seen in Paul Note that he's writing this letter from prison and, and what these people remember is like hey This is the guy that came into town Delivered a little girl from slavery both demonic oppression and from real slave masters They put him in prison and at night we were praying for him and he and Silas were in prison Singing hymns to God. This is what they remember this guy rejoicing under pressure and, and, and it's, so Paul, it tells us to practice the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. And this is talking about worship. A lot of times, when we read this passage and it says, rejoice in the Lord always, I say rejoice. I, I think, when I read that, he's telling me to rejoice. Or you might think he's telling you to rejoice. But it is in the second person plural, and what this means is he's calling the community to get together and rejoice in what God, in who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do. Rejoice as a community because we carry each other. Aren't there days, maybe today's one of them, when you don't feel like rejoicing? What are you supposed to do with that command? But if you consider that it's, it's talking to a community, then when I feel like not rejoicing and I show up here, you lift me. And when you don't feel rejoicing and you show up here, we lift you. We practice rejoicing not by faking it or by working ourselves up into a false emotional frenzy. We gather to tell the story of God and to remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done and what he's promised to do. Now, for those of us who which is all of us, uh, who don't get to see Paul in action in the flesh like the Philippian church? How are we supposed to look at him and to, to, to mimic him or to follow him? Well, we still pay attention to what we've learned and received and heard, but we also practice in this community. We sing as praise we sing praises to God, we read the scriptures, we pray, sometimes we lament, sometimes we celebrate, most of the times we do a mixture of all of those things, but we always lay the spectrum of our lives under the reality of Jesus, who created all and dwelled with us in the flesh and died for all and rose to redeem all and ascended over all history, which secures our future. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. And so we practice rejoicing. And and we practice paying attention to God's world. And so we we pay attention to scripture. Um, Like Abby's now taught a couple classes in paying attention to scripture. Uh, Monday morning, starting tomorrow at 10 a.m. in the fireside room, shameless plug, we're gonna start up school of prayer again, a contemplative prayer group for an hour. We're gonna attend to the scriptures and to our lives in contemplation together but we also uh, attend to the world around us. Um, At recreate last weekend, Jen Milston had a really cool project where she had cut out a circle of paper and you were to place that circle of paper um, on the ground or on a rock or somebody even did the sky because there's this cool telescope there and you were to draw what was just in your circle uh, to, to just pay attention To something that God created or that his image bearers created. Sophia's got some pictures that she'll show you of a few examples uh, from that. So these are just things that people... I wonder why that one's not on. Well, that's not a big deal. That was the night sky from from somebody. So pretty cool. Um, Paying attention. We also practice the way of Christ in community. I and mean, that makes sense in every other realm of life. If you want to get good at a language, you practice it. Um, Nathaniel is teaching a group of people how to play guitar and at recreate, uh, they did a couple songs uh, for, the, for the community. So we, they practice together in community. The church as a community is designed to practice the way of Jesus. Uh, again, at the retreat, there's this guy um, we met, Captain Funtimes, I think his name, Sophia's got a picture, I think. Uh, but yeah, this guy, uh, he looks sort of familiar, but Captain, Captain Funtimes. Um, and during mealtimes at the retreat, Captain Funtimes would, would call out uh, and, and notice what different people were doing. He would recognize um, like team points and stuff like that, but he would also recognize people's acts of kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and goodness and praiseworthiness and beauty and sacrifice and commitment and the whole thing was designed to be silly and fun but in reality we spent the weekend praising each other because we would tell captain funtimes like before lunch or dinner or something like that like hey i saw chuck shuttle like a 100 people up and down the hill selflessly and then captain funtimes would say like hey chuck we're recognizing you your team gets a point for doing something awesome or or we recognize like like Marcus's mad um, diving board skills and, and Dan's diving sports, you hit the chicken with the flip. I mean, that's a thing of beauty. Um, it, you know, but all of these things, seeing, our, uh, seeing kids like, take care of each other or help a younger sibling, uh, it reinforces this type of gentleness, this type of Christ-like behavior. That's what it means to practice in community. We want to be in a place that's supporting the Christ-like way. And a lot of times in the world out there, like we're not, it's more cutthroat than that. Like you're, you get praise when you win, but not necessarily for being a Christ-like person. It's the communal practice of Jesus. The communal practice of our trust in Jesus where our faith becomes less of a concept and it grows legs and it actually plays out in our lives. Listen to these words from Ronald Rollheiser who, when someone was trying to say like, hey, he's like a pretty deep spiritual thinker. Um, I love his books on prayer. And someone was asking him like, hey, what would you do to, you know, what would you say to someone who doesn't believe in God? You know, what, You seem to be such a deep traveler with God. And this is what he says. If someone said to me, try and prove that God exists, he said, I I wouldn't really spend much time trying. I would instead tell them to live a life in a certain way, to approach reality and relationships with a certain set of attitudes. I believe that by doing this, they would, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, eventually give birth to God in their lives. The solution to the atheism of our time is not finding better proofs for God's existence, but finding a better way of living, a proper praxis. If we live in purity of heart, God will become real. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Not only has he rescued us, but he's provided a way for us to practice joy through his Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, and in the community of the church. Lord, thank you again for your servant Paul, who encourages the Philippians so long ago, but continues to encourage us. And thank you for this community, for this family of faith in Jesus, as we support each other, encourage each other to walk in your way. Bless you. Amen.